Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. We get in his truck and we go, we're not, we're not doing this. This is bullshit. Um, and he says, I have some acid. Let's take some acid. And I said, okay, cool. Let's do that. So we take some acid and he goes, oh, by the way, I have to stop at the uh, local community college to to register for classes. And I'm saying, oh, wait, what do you do? I have a mindful of, of LSD and we're not going to be go to a place to wait. What are you what are you talking about? So we drive to Pasadena City College and he's standing in line to register for classes and the walls are melting and I'm freaking out. <laughs> and we, we get through that experience and we go to we go to Hollywood and we park just coincidentally in front of the Directors Guild of America. And we get out of the car and the building is speaking to me, right? Like the building is literally like forming eyes and, and it's talking to me in some kind of weird emotional language. And I was like, oh my God, I think, I think there's something here. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. 
Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Patrick, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. It is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually was introduced to you by way of our mutual friend, Akira Chan, who was an amazing human being. Uh, he told me about the work that you've done in film and, and the work that you've done on Finding Joe, all of which we will get into. Uh, but I want to start with what I think is a very relevant question, given the nature of your work and the film that you just said. And that is, what religious or spiritual beliefs were you brought up with and how did that end up impacting your life? Oh, that's a really good question. I was brought up by a physicist. A, my, my father is a scientist. And my mother, who is, um, uh, my, and my, my father is of German descent. He's Caucasian. And my mother is Japanese. Um, and she was an artist. And neither one of them had, um, religious or spiritual practices. In fact, my father was militantly atheist. But their, um, I don't know how to describe it. Their ethos is really what rubbed off on me. So, but, you know, my, my father being a scientist and my mother being an artist, was really what shaped my um, spiritual beliefs, actually. Mm. So, one, how did that impact you later in adult life? But more importantly, like you have, you know, a Japanese mother, German father. You, like, what parts of their culture did they infuse in you growing up? You know, and, and what parts of it did they have to let go of? And like, what parts of it did you fight? Because I mean, you know, to some degree, you've kind of had the experience of growing up with an immigrant parent. Oh yeah, yeah. I would say all. It's a, well, that's that's a good question. It's all over the map, actually. Um, so, so earlier in life, um, I really struggled with my mother being Japanese and we were picked on quite a bit, you know, um, uh, racially because of that. And that, that defined me quite a bit. Actually, um, those incidences, those traumatic experiences in life after having done some deep work around those really defined who I was, you know, they, it controlled my behaviors in, in many ways. 
Some mm. sometimes for the good, but it really made me um, strive to be an overachiever um, to compensate for that. Okay. So in some ways it, it worked out well, but it, but I was carrying around a lot of baggage as a result of it. And in later life, um, and and it's really really funny how it works out, right? It's it's an, it's ironic how the the thing that you hated the most as your child was your gift was your greatest gift, and and I feel like embracing that part of me, um, that part of my mother, which is very creative and Japanese and, and she's an immigrant and had to fight for a lot. Um, embracing that was, is really now my greatest strength. Yeah. It was your mother, a typical sort of Asian parent. I mean, your dad being a scientist also, my dad's a scientist as well. He's a professor. Uh, you know, I can tell you for damn sure the, the last thing on their minds was go do something creative as a career. And you know, you did. So did they have any particular career advice that was sort of standard? Yeah, yeah de- definitely the same thing. So my, my father was grooming me at an early age to become a scientist. And, um, and you know, I just kept gravitating towards things that were more creative and my mother was really encouraging me to do, um, you know, whatever I wanted, but, but at some point, you know, they were, they were both pretty checked out in my, in my high school years. So I just, I was kind of left to my own mm-hmm. and I feel like I, I just always gravitated toward anything creative. So I, I really tried to stick with that. And, and for him, he, I don't know, he, he didn't mind it, but it, but, but he didn't like it either. Mm. Why do you think that is? Because I, I don't think my dad minds it, but I think it's not that he doesn't like it. I think he just doesn't get it. Yeah, he didn't. I, I think uh, later in life he got it. But mm. early on, he saw the path to success as his own path to success, which is you go to college, you get a degree, um, and you find some success in whatever field that is. And that's that was the path that he took. And so he just projected that on me. Mm. Do you have siblings? And if so, did their career trajectories turn out really differently? Did your parents give them different advice? No, they get, he, uh, my, my brother, he works in, uh, in it, he manages pretty, um, big, uh, what do you call them? I don't even know what you call them memory banks, right? So uh, Apple and Google and all those the big companies have run these giant memory farms and he manages those. Mm. So what in the world led you into to filmmaking? Because one thing that I, I think is is fascinating about the sort of creative path, right? Particularly whether it's doing, you know, what I've done as an author, whether it's what you do as a filmmaker, is unlike, you know, sort of becoming a doctor, the steps aren't clearly laid out in front of you. It's like, well, you know, you could take this class or do this major. It might lead you there or it might lead you nowhere. It's like, you know, the film school grad who becomes an investment banker or vice versa. Um, what you know, what happened that led you to to where you're at today? It's, this is a, it's a, it's an interesting origin story. So, um, a combination of things. One is I knew I was creative. Um, two is, uh, um, the work of Joseph Campbell and three is LSD. So, <laughs> so just to, just to mix that all up, right. On my, um, I, I had heard about Joseph Campbell through a, um, a, a teacher, Right. But really not so much more than the phrase, follow your bliss. Mm-hmm. And during my high school graduation, instead of going to graduation, my friend and I decided it would be a good idea to drop LSD and drive around Hollywood. <laughs> okay. You got to tell us about that whole thing in much more detail. Okay. So basically we, we, we get in his truck and we go, we're not, we're not doing this. This is bullshit. Um, and he says, I have some acid. Let's take some acid. And I said, okay, cool. Let's do that. 
So he takes some acid and he goes, oh, by the way, I have to stop at the uh, local community college to to register for classes. And I'm saying, oh, wait, what do you do? I have a mindful of, of LSD and we're not going to be go to a place to wait. What are you what are you talking about? So we drive to Pasadena City College and he's standing in line to register for classes and the walls are melting and I'm freaking out. <laughs> and we, we get through that experience and we go to we go to Hollywood and we park just coincidentally in front of the Directors Guild of America. And we get out of the car and the building is speaking to me, right? Like the building is literally like forming eyes and, and it's talking to me in some kind of weird emotional language. And I was like, oh my God, I think, I think there's something here. And then I woke up the next morning and in my back pocket, I must have pulled a flyer off the wall because there was a, a flyer that said, make movies this summer. And it was a flyer for a, a filmmaking class over the summer. And so I went, oh, my God, this is like a sign. And I took that filmmaking class. And also, at the same time, was, was uh, Joseph Campbell and Bill Moyers, that interview came out. And it was kind of right then and there that I went, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I'm, I'm a filmmaker. That's what I do. That's what I'm going to do. This is it. Yeah. And that was in, like, you know, the mid-'80s. And it has, and that's where I've been ever since. It's been really amazing. Why do you think that you discovered that so early in life, um, and so many people don't? And uh, do you think it, it, you know it takes LSD for us to come to these kind of real? <laughs> I was just I, say, everybody needs to take LSD at an early age. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. <laughs> I'm sure the parents um, listening are like thrilled yeah, that now no, we're no, encouraging no, drug no, use. Don't don't do that. Um, yeah. Don't do that. It doesn't really matter. I feel like. Um, I actually don't know, but I did know that I've always had something very, there's been something very burning me that's creative. Like if it wasn't filmmaking, it would have been something else creative. It just feels like I knew at an early age that I was meant to do something in the creative field. I just didn't know what it was. And when I came across the idea of filmmaking, it blended all these things together, music and art and film and storytelling. And it was just, the, it just spoke to me in a way that, um, it was, it was too powerful to not say yes to. Right. Yeah. Well, so the funny thing is like, you know, I've been doing a lot of, of research, you know, both, you know, you know, from reading as well as experimenting on, uh, psychedelics, just, you know, uh, to understand, you know, why they produce these sort of states of consciousness. And I think that, you know, the narrative around psychedelics has changed fundamentally over the last probably year or two, particularly with, you know, Michael Pollan's book, you know, how to change your mind, uh, the work that people like Stephen Kotler are doing, you know, at, uh, the flow research collective in terms of, of accessing these higher states of consciousness. Um, like, why is it that we have to be able to reach, you know, these higher states of consciousness for breakthroughs like the one you had, whether it, and even as a writer, I know for a fact that there's a big difference between sitting down to work on a task, you know, in a sort of mundane thing or one where I'm totally in flow and I'm just in the zone for three hours. The work that comes out is very different. Um, why is that? You know, like I feel like it's because when you are it's like when you walk around in reality, you're in the forest. But when you have those moments of peak experience, you are above the trees and your your perspective shifts and therefore you can put creative dots and connect them differently than you would if you were in the forest. Yeah. We're joking um, earlier 
about the idea of, you know, uh, you know, encouraging kids to try LSD at an early age. And you're like, no, 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 don't do that. So I, I wonder, are you a parent yourself? I am a parent myself. My kid is um, uh, turning 21 next week and he mm-hmm. goes to school in Santa Cruz. Okay. I wonder, like, you know, what would your reaction be to your kid trying uh, LSD? Like, I, how would you I actually, to be honest with you, I've encouraged him to do so. Wow. Okay. Yes. yes. Can you can you expand on that for parents who are listening who are like, what the hell? <laughs> Talk, yeah, I, because, to me, because I feel like it's it has to do with your personal experience, right? So, so for one parent, it may be like, what the hell? Because that's based on their personal experience. Yeah. But because of my personal experience, I feel like it's it was mandatory, right? It really, it really, just like you said, it, it gives you these peak experiences and allows you to see reality in a different way. Um, and, and most of the time, in fact, in my time, in in my case, every single time I've done it, I've come away with something beneficial. Mm -hmm. So I feel like as a parent, you know, you share your, you share your wins and your experiences with your, with your child, you know, the things that work for you, like going to college, getting a degree for some parents, you try to put that on your kid. Yeah. For me, um, I feel that that's not, it's not everything, but that's one component of my life that I feel like w- he would benefit from. And we have special circumstances. So I, I lost my wife to cancer, his mother, uh, two years ago. Mm. So his college experience has been marred by that. In fact, his high school experience has been marred by um, her battle with cancer, which was four years. So his entire high school experience was was also dealing with his mother struggling with cancer. Wow. So, um, you know, that also was a contributing factor to that decision. You know, I feel like, and, and he, by the way, he's, he has subsequently experimented with those things and giving me nothing but positive feedback. Like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm really glad I did that. And I, and I had some um, remarkable insights. Mm. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. For you, what decisions did you make about how you were going to live your life going forward based on having lost your wife? Um, I feel like, I feel like number one is that, um, we were married for 25 years and, and she was just an amazing human being. And I try to take the best parts of her and incorporate that into myself. I, I intentionally took her strengths and try to use them in my daily life as a practice. Um, and then, yeah, I, I think, I think beyond that it's difficult because it's still raw yeah. for me. So yeah. I, I try to, I try to make that a, a, a practice, but, but other than that, it's still very raw. And, you know, I, I still miss her quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and you know, feel free to to say no. Like I can, if I ask this question, we can edit it out. But I mean, how does it change your vision for your future? And if you're not comfortable, it makes my, no, I'm I'm totally comfortable telling you this, and it, it relates back to the movie that I made, Finding Joe. Is yeah. that it? It really shines a light and pulls into sharp relief your own mortality and the fact that you have very little time on this planet, and so. As a result, as a direct result of her passing, um, I think I've also said to myself, in fact, I know I have very consciously, there's only so much time. What do you want to do? Let's get that done, period. Whatever it is, there's no excuse. There's no tomorrow. Get out of bed every day and pursue that thing until you die because someday you'll be dead. So what's funny is you, you know you and I can have this conversation. People can listen to it. We can go read books like Bronnie Ware's Regrets of the Dying. We can watch movies, and I think that there's a huge difference between understanding something like this intellectually and understanding it in the way that you have emotionally, because you're a person who's much more likely to take action on it. Whereas for so many of us, those things are just platitudes. How do you bridge that gap? 
It's true. I don't think there's, I don't think there's bridging that gap for most people. I think, I think there is no bridging that gap. If you can't experience it in, in a way that's, um, that's experiential, like if you don't actually experience it as opposed to intellectualizing it, your behavior is not going to shift or it, it may for some people, it actually may, but I would say for the, the large, vast majority of people, um, you need those experiences, which is why alcoholics need to hit rock bottom before something happens, right? You need that experience um, before you take action or it changes your behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Joseph Campbell. You know, I uh, just the other day on Sunday, I had a college student who emailed me um, saying that, you know, he asked the question, how do you find the courage to pursue your ideas? And, and I thought, okay, well, let's talk about Joseph Campbell because that probably is really a relevant question to the work of Campbell. I know that from, you know, having read, you know, The Writer's Journey, which is basically based on some of that as well as A Hero with a Thousand Faces. But um, what led you to basically making a film about this? Okay, so this this film I feel like was made um, for uh, out of a couple different things, right? Um, and and I know I just spoke about my wife passing, so it's mm-hmm. going to seem like I need I need to have tragedies in my life to do anything. But the film was really born out of a crisis that I was having. So my um, I was in the middle of a very embarrassing and classic midlife crisis. Whatever you think an American midlife crisis is for a male, I, I was doing that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, and I, and I was uh, directing uh, television commercials and I was becoming quite successful and um, making a lot of money and, um, uh, and having a lot of turmoil. Right then and there, both of my parents passed away within two weeks of each other. Wow. And that was really brutal. It was just, it was like crisis upon crisis upon crisis. And I had always been a fan of Campbell. And when, you know, my early 20s, I really got into Campbell. I read everything that he published. And I, and I read The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which is a difficult read for me. I'm not a great reader. And it's written in this weird old English that, um, yeah. <laughs> that I know I've tried. Thick language, right? So you read yeah. an entire paragraph, which is one sentence. And you went, wait, what did I just read? <laughs> yeah. That's anyway, my point is that I, I, I just chewed up this material. And so it had stuck with me throughout my filmmaking career. And I always said in the back of my mind, I wanted to make this film. And so I decided then that now is a good time to make this film. Um, it would probably be a good pathway. Like you can imagine someone dropping a rope into a tunnel and climbing that rope out. And that's how I saw making this film like, I saw it as a journey that would take me out of my crisis. In addition, I always knew that there was um, a message in there that the world could use, right? I, I, his work is very difficult to, to understand. So as a filmmaker, I went, oh my God, I can take these ideas and simplify them and turn them into a film and um, people will be able to relate to them better. So all these things happened and I went, okay, now's the time to start this journey. I've been thinking about it forever and, and let's do this. And so I just... I just very consciously went, okay, I'm on this journey. Yeah. So we'll, we'll get into the hero's journey uh, in just a second, but I mean, having lost your wife, both your parents within two weeks of each other, um, how in the world does somebody find the resilience uh, within themselves to get back up after such a, a difficult experience? And, and, you know, cause I think that there are some people who react the way that you do, who channel that into something positive. You know, this is the, the thing that I always said is that you can let adversity either inform you or define you. And so many people let it define them in a way that becomes paralyzing. 
Uh, right. My son was a good example of that. You know, he's a very young man and a very, um, um, you know, and so he let that define him and, and that was very difficult for him. Mm-hmm. But what do you think it is that allows um, a person to bounce back the way that you have and, and still see hope in, in the midst of, of what clearly is an experience that I, I can't even fathom all those things happening at the same time? Um, well, I would say that my, I, I don't, I don't know. I would say that really having, um, for my parents anyway, that, that happened a while ago too. So, um, it's not like they were all right on top of each other, but right. that, that happened, um, about 10 years ago, maybe more now, 11 years ago. Um, what happened? I, I feel like it was horrible but I had no choice, right? You have, you just have some choices there. So you can roll over, right. And get steamrolled mm-hmm. or you can get up and do something about it. And I, and I, I don't know why, but I just chose to do something about it. I think also, you know, it com- comes back to Campbell quite a bit because um, I was, his work was so inside of me, right. The hero's journey and um, finding the courage to follow your bliss. And those, yeah. those messages were already in me. So that definitely helped. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the the phases of a hero's journey, because I, I think, like you said, I mean, I think we can kind of look at each one of them on that that sort of circle. And I, I know this because I've tried to read The Hero of a Thousand Faces and I had the same experience you did. And I, I'm a good reader, like I read hundreds of books. And I was just like, all right, I can't do this. Um, <laughs> you know, right? like I just didn't have the patience. I kept the book because I was like, you know what? I know I'm going to come back to this at some point. I stopped um, recommending it to people for that reason, right? I always <laughs> recommend the Bill Moyers book now because it's an easy read. Okay, good to know. I will I'll get my hands on that. But l- let's talk about these phases. I mean, I think we kind of all sort of implicitly understand them. It's kind of funny because I think inherently I try to build that structure into every single interview that I do. Um, it just somehow comes out. And uh, so let's let's dissect that and then, you know, kind of, you know, explain to me kind of how you put it into a film. Okay. Um, how should I proceed? <laughs> I guess let's start start at the beginning, like, you know, because I mean, it's such a like you said, it's such a complicated concept when you open the book, but you took it and put it into a film to make us understand it a bit better. So let's just start kind of, you know, at, at sort of the, the core principles and we can kind of dive into each one. And then uh, I'll ask you whatever questions I have, because I think that, you know, each one of these things, I think that we can all tie it back to a life experience very easily. I, I, OK, so so I'll start there. Right. So I think for me, the great thing about um, Joseph Campbell's definition of the hero's journey is that. Although he studied stories and mythology and religion and really discovered this um, common pattern that the hero goes off on this journey and returns, and no matter what the time period or the culture is, the heroes seem to be taking the same journey. Um, and, and that was very interesting to him. And what really caught me about it was he, he was not the first person to see that, but he was the first person to relate it to living a human life. And that, to me, just grabbed me. Yeah. Oh, my God. You mean I'm a hero that's taking the same journey as um, Prometheus or, you know, or any biblical story or um, Star Wars or, you know, you name the story. And I was all of a sudden seeing myself as the hero on that metaphorical journey. But in my real life, it's not a metaphor. It's my life. So I really just loved that idea. And it turns out to be true, right? Mm-hmm. I, it really turns out to, to be, especially when, when you are doing anything creative, um, 
or even not creative, just living your life, yeah. um, that you go through the stages that the heroes that you see on screen go through. And life is difficult and you need to find um, the courage and the skills to overcome those difficulties um, to discover greater powers in yourself. So to me, I think one of the the things that's interesting, you know, when I've talked to people, you know, I, I remember my friend uh, Eric Wall, who's our guest here, he said, you know, Soren Kierkegaard once said that, you know, all changes preceded by crisis, which is a fitting thing to say, considering the crisis that we're in right now. And, you know, I, I always wondered if, you know, if that's the case and you don't have a crisis, what do you do? Uh, because you're right. It seems like for some reason people get comfortable. And, and I, I've noticed that pretty unanimously across the board, um, it's either some sort of crazy inciting incident, some rock bottom moment or something that really challenges um, somebody's life experience that causes them to make a, a massive shift. Is it possible to bring about those significant changes without the inciting incident? Oh, the, we're, we were just talking about this earlier. Um, no. I, I personally think it is possible, but if you take a large group of people, a very small percentage will actually be able to do that on an intellectual level and just read a book and say, oh my God, um, I need to change my thoughts and my habits and then just go do it. Yeah, that, That's very, very rare. In, in my experience, you really need to have uh, what Campbell would call a wake-up call. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if the classic example is Star Wars and in that scene where Luke actually decides after having resisted to go on this journey, he's got no choice. His village has been burned down and, and his caretakers have been uh, murdered. Yeah. So what's he going to do now? He's got no choice. And life often uh, acts like that. Well, it's kind of funny because I think that there are, you know, momentary wake up calls that we all have and often we ignore them. You know, like I, I can tell you my, the early part of my career, it's like I, you know, getting fired from three jobs in a row at sales, you should think that, oh, this should be the wake up call that maybe this isn't meant to be. You suck at this. <laughs> and it took me another seven years of repeating it, you know, over and over to be like, wow, I really suck at this. Oh like, why God. is that? What, what causes people to ignore their wake up call? Right. What, um, that's a very good question, too. I, and once again, I think that's very individualized. So mm-hmm. for some people, they have a very sensitive wake up call meter. Oh my God, that's a wake up call. I better, I better pay attention to that. And, and actually, as I'm talking, I realize that as you start going through those, um, as you start doing that, you get better at it. So your wake up call meter gets better over time. Mm-hmm. You start to recognize over time things, you know, potential crises as wake up calls. Um, and and act on them. I think age does that to you as well. As you get older, you go, oh, right. This is the universe trying to tell me that I suck at this and move on to something else. Yeah. Well, speaking of, of wake-up calls, let's, let's talk about this whole idea in the context of what we're dealing with right now. You know, I mean, a global pandemic is, you know, as big a crisis as you could probably experience in a lifetime, and, and we're not experiencing it just individually. We're experiencing it, you know, sort of as a collective. Um, and I'm curious when you look at this through the lens of the work that you've done with Joseph Campbell, like, how do you think about that now? Like, can, you know, what's the opportunity here? Ah, that's a, that's another good one because, um, the opportunity here, right? So at first during the pandemic, I really liked the opportunity that was presented that I saw that happening in my community, right? Which was people were reprioritizing. You could, you couldn't go out, you couldn't go to your job. A lot of people just didn't have a job to go to. But they had to do something, right, to connect, to to keep themselves busy. And so a lot of people are just going back to the basics, like 
connecting on Zoom with people that they just would never do that with. Um, what's 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 important to you? Like reassessing um, your your priorities was just a, a major thing, and I saw it happening in my neighborhood and in my community on a massive scale, and it was really amazing. Right. But the the funny thing is we're now, you know, on the other side of that, um, you being in L.A., where we've kind of hit a boiling point um, where, you know, like what we had hoped would be kind of, you know, a reassessment of what matters. Um, you know, my roommate, one of my roommates described this whole experience as a long over, you know, <clears throat> a long overdue evolution in human consciousness. And yet uh, the way we're coming out of this right now, at least at this moment while we're recording this is is almost terrifying to me. Like I've never seen anything like it in my life. Right. So I, I went through the Rodney King riots here in, in Venice Beach. Yeah. Um, and and two days ago, I walked down, you know, block from my house and I followed a group of protesters with my camera and shot some images that were pretty disturbing. I don't really have a conclusion for it yet. Like, I, I don't I don't want to start attaching meaning to it quite yet. Mm, sure. But overall it definitely felt like, Oh my God, where everyone's like reprioritizing. And now we're going, there's another crisis to distract us. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think maybe if you look back at history, at least recent history, you know, we went through the sixties, um, which were even more violent than what's happening now and everybody survived. But, but the question is, will there ever be a, a, a logical evolution in human consciousness? Maybe, maybe we're just, as a group anyway, destined to repeat history. Hmm. So this is something I've asked a handful of people, you know, ranging from economists to social scientists. And, you know, given your work, I want to ask you this. You know, it's funny. I'm reading this book called The Molecule of More, which is about dopamine and all about the fact that human beings are just perpetually driven, you know, to want more, to achieve more, to accomplish more. Totally agree with that. You know, and so the one thing I wondered, you know, is, is that, you know, if you look at sort of nature, and I was telling a friend this, nature is a completely interdependent system where no part of nature necessarily prioritizes self-interest because if it did, it would fall apart. It's not like the sun says, you know what, fuck you plants, I'm not coming out today. The sun comes out because the plant, you know, the plants need the sun and we need the oxygen from the plants. Human beings are not like that. Um, but yet, the funny thing is, if we weren't driven by self-interest, we also wouldn't have accomplished so many of the things that we have. Right. And, you know, I, I wonder, you know, when you look at it through the lens of a hero's journey and the work that you've done with Joseph Campbell, like, do you think we prioritize self-interest to a point of diminishing returns? Uh, let's see. I think overall, he, uh, humans have prioritized as large groups self-interest um, to the point of diminishing returns. Yes. And, but I, I also think that, you know, you just said that nature, you know, works like the sun just doesn't say fuck you. Mm. And it's as though that humans are separate from nature, right? But but we're not, right? You're really you're really part of it. And the illusion is because you live in a city and you have a, a nuclear reactor that powers your city, that you're somehow different or above it, when in fact you're just part of it. And yeah. so all the turmoil that you see around you um is maybe it's maybe it's just part of the, the big dance. Mm. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. I want to talk specifically about careers and careers in the arts. I mean, you're in probably what is arguably one of the most difficult fields to actually make a name for yourself in and actually make any traction in. And I think that one thing that 
many aspiring artists have in their head is this sort of myth of the I've made it moment, that moment when they're going to feel as though they've arrived and that their work will be done and that, you know, um, (laughs) and I think, I don't remember who it was. I think it was Sally Fields in her memoir. She said, there's no artist that's not afraid, no matter how successful they are, that all of it will come to an end. Um, which I, I think is a really bizarre sort of thing when you know that you've actually arrived at a certain point in your career where you're financially secure, like you have all these things. Um, in your career, what, what is the poorest you ever remember being? Like, what was the most difficult time you remember going through in terms of the building process? Uh, let's see. The, build, the, the poorest time was, uh, of course, at the beginning, right, when I wanted to make films, but I didn't have the money to make them. And of course, I chose a very expensive uh, art form, right? It's incredibly expensive to do. So I had all these ideas that I couldn't afford. And I really felt like there was this mountain that I was going to, that I would never climb. Like, Oh my God, how am I going to get the money to do that? There's no possible way. Yeah. And so I walked around for about a year, just totally defeated. Like this is just, I, 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 I don't know about this. Hmm. How did you, how did you get over that, that feeling of being defeated? Because I think that I see that in so many people who are like, oh, I don't have the confidence to do this. I don't know what to do. You know, these are the things that I've just heard from, from my own readers. I just kept plugging away. I just kept, I kept, I I stopped trying to, to hit the home run and Mm -hmm. just started to hit like base hits. Right. Okay, cool. Well, I have this, I have this 16 millimeter camera. What can I shoot? And then Mm -hmm. I just focused on what I could do and not what I wanted to do. And that A, made me happier and B, allowed me to get these little hits and these little wins and that and stacking those up. Um, it took a lot more, you know, it took a lot of time, but uh-huh. that just was, was way better. And even now, even now I'm at a point where, so the, the, we're, we're a production is pretty much shut down because of COVID, right? Yeah. So what can I do, right? What can I shoot? That's and I'm kind of back to where I started. Like I, I still I have a camera, and I'm I'm in the middle of a film. I've been making this film for the last year, um, and instead of going, okay, well, I'm just shut down here doing nothing. I I'm trying to figure out what I can do, and there's a lot of things that I can do that I can shoot that I can produce right now, um, in service of the of the bigger picture, which is the film. I think I, I love the base hits versus home runs analogy because I, I literally used that exact metaphor. I, I wrote this, you know, free ebook called "Make More Art: A No Bullshit Guide to Becoming a Prolific Creator." And I said, listen, the common pattern I found between everybody who was successful as a creative is that they, they just make a lot of stuff, and a lot of it is shit. Um, and it's like you know, base hits versus home runs because those home runs are so rare. It is, and there's another thing to share right in that zone, um, which I'm just getting on board myself recently and i'm really bummed that i didn't do this earlier in my career and that is somebody just somebody said to me a really good friend of mine said listen dude done is better than perfect mm-hmm. and i've really been trying to take that to heart like you can you can just as an artist you can just spend days and weeks and months trying to make something perfect and and a lot of that has to do with your fears about how it's going to be perceived like oh well, if i don't make it perfect and i put it out there and people are going to laugh at it when when you see the probably the best guys, they just make it and put it out there, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't need to be perfect. You don't need to stress over it. Just get it done and put it out there and move on to the next one and build your skills and build your confidence that way. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I made my first documentary film sometime in, in December. I made a 10 minute, you know, short because I got the iPhone 11. It was the first time wow. I was like, holy shit, I can make a documentary. And I took Ken Burns documentary class and I made a documentary about the women in my family and how, what amazing cooks they were. No way. That's awesome. 
you know, is it, I'll, I'll send it to you. Uh, but you know, and, and I was like trying to find a theme. I was like, oh, they all cook with zero recipes. That's it. So it's this little mini short called zero recipes. And it was so much fun. Like, and it was one of those things where I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to get as much done as I can. And, you know, it was one of those things. I, I think there's also another part of this that, um, it put me back in touch with something I had lost in the process of getting to do this for a living. And that was going back to doing it for fun. Right. Uh, you know, and I wonder, like, when you get to where you're at, um, how do you find that balance between, you know, like the work for its own sake versus doing the work for earning a living? Um, that's a that's another good question. So there's two things there, right? One is, um, you you want to try to align. I know, I I know it's out there. I know it's very difficult to do, but uh, I was doing commercials for many years, and I really really enjoyed it. So even if it was a crap commercial. I enjoyed the process of filmmaking so much that um, to me, it was kind of one in the same, like I was making money and I was doing something I love and I was always grateful for that. Um, but now my career has shifted, right? I'm doing films now and, and zero commercials, right? So it's, it's difficult to make the money doing films. You have to spend a lot of money, not bring any income in for a year or more and then sell that film. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a very feast and famine thing and it gets, it gets very stressful. And right now, like just just last week, there was a friend of mine who's a wardrobe stylist who said, hey, um, I need to shoot this fashion model and this line of clothing. And I was like, oh, my God, that's exactly what I've been looking for. I'm going to do this for no money and for no other reason than the fun of it. And we just went down to Venice Beach, COVID safe, of course, and shot a bunch of incredible images of this dress and this little girl was wearing and it was so much fun and that got the juices flowing again um and i and i sat down and i wrote a bunch of new scenes for this film that i'm working on and i would not have done that if i didn't take this creative pause and go do something just purely for the joy of doing it yeah well i mean i always find that some of my best ideas for my work that i get paid for comes from work that i do just for the sake of doing it you know yes. Um, like people, my roommate was like, why are you making this film? You're spending copious amounts of time on it. And I was like, I just for fun, I said, tell you what, I was like, the crazy thing is I'm learning so much. I, and it's funny because I took 10 years of what I've learned from this show and applied it to something that had nothing to do with this, you know, from writing books, all that. And it was just a blast. I never had so much fun putting a project together. It's, it's really amazing how that works. I think it's, a, I think it's good for anyone listening to this too, is to just, maybe make it a practice or an exercise and say to yourself, okay, what is the little fun thing that I just want to do for nothing else, but the fun of it, it brings me pure joy. I'm in my zone and just spend the day or two days or chunk, a chunk of time, put it on the calendar and go do it. And I think what comes out of that is way greater than uh, what you think. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you're from a world that predates uh, social media. Yeah, where oh, thanks for outing me. Great. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean that as a compliment. I don't mean that. As a you, know, you mentioned that you came up with the age. But the thing is, as somebody who basically built a creative career pre-social media, and you, you witnessed this, I think specifically related to what you say. You know, I, I remember I wrote an article on Medium titled How the Death of the Influence or How the Birth of the Influencer Led to the Death of Hobbies. Um and you know, now we have this sort of idea that, you know, like what you're saying is, you know, oh yeah, if I do that, then I've got to put out on Instagram. And if I don't get a thousand likes, it wasn't worth my time. Um, which un- is a really, I think, an unfortunate byproduct of this. That, uh, that is. And I think that's a, that's a battle you have to fight within yourself, right? You have to, yeah. 
if we're doing what we just talked about, which is going and doing something for the pure joy of it, if you are doing it for the joy of it and in the back of your mind, you're going, oh man, I'm going to put this on Instagram and I get more followers, then, then you're not really doing it for the joy of it. Yeah. Yeah. And you well, really, and that's, you really have to watch that. That's a, that's like a, a self monitoring thing. You have to, you have to know yourself well enough or get in touch with yourself well enough to know your motivations, right? Are you doing this just for creative joy or are you doing this for validation? Mm, I love that. So speaking of which, you know, you're, yeah, I wonder, you know, from where you were at when you were younger, when you started this journey to now, how is your definition of what it means to be successful as a creative changed? Uh, when I was, when I was younger, I thought if I had a career that I could make a living on, right? If I could just make a living shooting film, then I would be successful. If I was a, if I was a director, um, and, and I could, you know, have a family and pay my rent. That was, that was success to me. My definition now, I, I haven't really taken the time to clearly define it in the, in the way that I did back then. Like I actually wrote that on a piece of paper and I'm glad we're having this conversation because I'm going to go and do this exercise. <laughs> I've been um, known to do that to people. But my, my definition now would be um, something about impact, right? Like I would love to have, in addition to being able to make a living on creating films, I would also very specifically want to have a, an inspirational impact on the viewer. Like I want someone to watch my film and change their behavior. Like, like I, I love the fact that people watch Finding Joe and they go, oh my God, okay, a group of women watch Finding Joe and they all, as a result of watching the film, as a direct result, took turns breaking up with their boyfriends, which they had been wanting to do for a long time. They took, they watched my film and they took action, which I, which to me, it seems um, like a good definition of a successful film. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that to me, when I, I think probably my most rewarding thing is when somebody tells me that they've done something with the material here, that like to me is like, okay, that's real impact. We can measure it. It's like, oh, I changed a job or did something because of something I heard one of your guests say. Yes. Yeah. I, I, to I completely agree with that. Right. It's one thing. And this goes back to what you're talking about earlier. The thing that you take action on is typically what you feel. And mm -hmm. in those lines, like along those lines, um, film has the power to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard him like uh, Sam Jones hosts the off camera podcast where he has, a oh, I know, I know Sam Jones. Well, he's a good friend. Yeah. So like I mean, the people he brings in are, are just wonderful, but I, I think that, one of the things I appreciate uh, about, you know, film in particular as an art form is it gives us this opportunity to suspend disbelief completely and just travel into this other world where we can see ourselves in the characters. We can see things that don't, you know, aren't realistic in our normal lives. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I really love that about the, about film is that when you when you watch a film and you suspend disbelief, right? You're kind of at the mercy of the filmmaker, and as a filmmaker, you have um, the ability to shift. You know, you just kind of reach inside someone and kind of shift their emotions around, right? Yeah. And I think that's really uh, powerful, amazing, and I don't know. There's, I really just love that aspect of filmmaking. When you're editing, especially, you're saying, yeah. "How is the person watching this going to feel?" And you mm -hmm. just kind of ride that wave. So uh, that note, I have a, a totally unrelated question about this. So, you know, I'm you know like a diehard Friday Night Lights fan. Um, 
And what I wonder is, is what is it that causes like that combination of characters and emotional effect on a viewer? Because like I'll have friends who are like, oh, I don't like football. It's like, yeah, this show has nothing to do with football. Football is a backdrop. Even if you don't like football, you'll absolutely right. love this. Like, right. how does that happen? Yeah, I think I think that happens because of the hero's journey, man. We're we're all programmed. It's this it's the same reason why some people love a film and some other people would hate that same film, right? You're you have like this key, this there's like a, a lock in your mind, and certain keys will fit it and certain keys will don't. They hit those similar things of the way that people grow up, right? You're you're touching the people's past in a similar way. Um I don't know. There's something just very powerful about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, I can see why a career referred you. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Another good question. I think that's that to, to be unmistakable, you have to stand out from your background, whatever that is. So if you're a white dot on a blackboard, you're going to be unmistakable. If that makes sense. Yeah. Wow. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your wisdom with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work and uh, everything that you're up to? Um, Right now I just released finding Joe on YouTube for free. And that seems to be a really good place to, um, to communicate with people. I'm also on Facebook, just Pat Solomon. And I'm on Instagram as big fat donkey. Wow. Well, I think that makes a perfect way to wrap the show. (laughs) Everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.